Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week on the show we have half an hour of fantastic science. I'm talking with Tilly Boleyn, the curator of health and science at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, who is back with us. She was with us about a month ago and she's just been to a conference all about the history of medical science. And, um, yeah, so she's going to tell us a couple of things that she presented at the conference, including how women's stories are being recorded in collections at museums. So that, Awesome. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, Claire, uh, on, a, on a medical bent, I am going to be looking at DNA testing, like the ancestry DNA testing, which is all the rage these days. It's all the rage. It is all the rage. So, so you're, you're going to reveal what's... Well, I'm going to look at Actually kind of what happens, but also how accurate is it? You know, what is what is it? Is it is it worth doing? Um, I don't really want to spoil the story, but the term genetic astrology gets used. Oh, <laughs> yeah, nasty. <laughs> and Stu, what do you have for us today? Someone actually asked me: Is there such a thing as elements that we don't know about, or are there elements in the universe that we don't know about? Right. And I have got an answer, but. It might not be a very satisfying answer to the person who asked the question because, well, you'll find out. Well, stay tuned to find out if there are elements that we don't know about in the universe. Hello, you are listening to Lost in Science and we're lucky enough to have curator extraordinaire Tilly Boleyn in the studio with us today, who has just um, come back from a special conference. Till you are, of course, a curator at the Powerhouse Museum and you are a curator in science, health and medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about the conference that you've just been at? Of course. I mean, I love it that I get to come to Melbourne and go to excellent conferences like this and, of course, come in and speak to Lost in Science. Well, welcome back. Thanks. Can I just say, it's great to have you back in the studio. Oh, it's an absolute joy. So I've just attended the Australian New Zealand Society of the History of Medicine. Boom! conference. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that struck me the last time I went to the, uh, this particular conference is that, you know, uh, there is a lot of representation in the history of medicine of white, rich men. Who traditionally take up a lot of the positions as um, medical professionals. Yeah. So, so and so not mm. only that, because, of course, yes, because a lot of the things that we, in terms of material culture, so what museums keep to tell stories about, um, a lot of that comes from large donations. So people who have worked in the field um, and have collected objects and stories about things that have happened and the developments over time that have come from those. And generally that that does tend to be 
you know, rich white rich men. Rich white dudes. Because women have only relatively recently been allowed to become professionals in medicine. They've certainly been there forever. It's not as though uh, women did not exist in this field. It's just that their histories seem to be hidden and they're a lot more difficult to dig out. Because yeah, and those stories haven't been recorded. Yeah, because even if they were in the lab and contributing to a particular discovery, they're not listed as authors. So some of the time, you know, the male authors would thank them in the footnotes right. by name. And that actually is something that I just got from the conference in terms of, well, you can start looking um, at particular areas that you want to look at and then check out the footnotes for women to investigate. Right. So that was the sort of way that they would acknowledge Sometimes. Sometimes, but certainly not always. Yeah. So my um, presentation at this conference was trying to – I was looking at a couple of case studies of how we might change this for the future. And the arts community actually is decades ahead of us. Have you heard of the Gorilla Girls? Very peripherally. Okay. So they're this outfit of female artists in New York in the early 80s. They they started off with this great campaign that said – do women have to be naked to get into the Met? Which was true because when they did a count, uh, the Met was collecting out of out of its acquisitions, 3% were females, whereas the nudes on the wall... <sighs> so low. That is so low. <laughs> the nudes on the wall were like in the high 80s. And so if you wanted to be the subject of a painting <laughs> and you were willing to get your kid off, yep. you could definitely get in the, mi- oh, in the mat. But yeah. if you wanted to paint some stuff, they're not going to collect it. And so they started this campaign. They were anonymous. They wore gorilla masks. And they were rabble-rousers saying, this isn't good enough. And the thing that they really brought attention to was that you need to count so you actually have to have a baseline. You need to be able to say how what we're doing now so that you can compare it. That's very scientific. That's, that's right, totally. Yeah. And they're artists. Who knew? <laughs> um, and then in Australia there's this person um, or, uh, called the Countess. So she counts Australian art galleries and museums and does a report on that that's available free online with the Countess blog. Uh, And so I was looking at those sort of examples, but it's a bit more complex in museum collecting because it's not just about stuff that women make. Because in the art you can go, oh, this person, you need to figure out whether they identify as a male or a female or, or uh, you know, a non-binary gender. But for the most part you're saying we want things that that women make to be kept records of and kept in galleries. Whereas in museums, I'm trying to think a little bit more and it's a bit more difficult, which is why going to conferences like this is awesome about it's the stories that we want to keep as well. So not necessarily an invention that was made by a woman, but I want to look at inventions or advances in health and medicine and science that were for and about women. So the gender of the person making it doesn't actually matter that much, but I want to capture the essence of why it was created, how we got to the point of wanting to do this thing and and sort of those stories that we haven't given value to as in 
Uh, so, for an example, yeah, yeah, um, it, at my museum, so the powerhouse in Sydney, in the eighties, again the eighties, ah, second wave feminism, <laughs> sorting stuff out. So the, the uh, there was this awesome two women actually, uh, Elizabeth Lee and Megan Hicks, and they looked at the collection of health and medicine and went, you know, there's a lot of stuff missing, like contraception or anything about the fact that women have periods and how there was nothing in the collection nothing nothing. and about how we would do how we've changed and dealt with that and what things we use to the innovations yeah exactly which yeah which is huge yeah but and totally life-changing exactly in terms of what it meant to be a woman for that particular point in time in your month every Every month, like that's a huge part of our lives. So they started focusing and doing active collecting in that area and it was incredibly controversial. Oh, what, in the 80s? Yeah. Yeah, Like to talk about periods and to talk about contraception was still really taboo, especially for something that's supposed to be, you know, a bit high and mighty like, a you know, we're keeping it in a museum collection. Mm. And there she was proposing different types of tampons and dental dams and uh, condoms and advertising campaigns, like quite risque advertising campaigns. Um, but it, she made a push for it. And now the museum has the largest, richest contraceptive collection in the country possibly the world Wow! that people come and can research and draw on in terms of that shift of um, sexual health and education that happened in this country. So that would be um, like pads and tampons and then different contraceptive types all catalogued and all those stories. Yeah, yeah, photographed in those stories. Like there's this one awesome uh, contraceptive that's called the Rhythm Meter and it was made by an engineer. Sounds (laughs) fun. Not as fun as it sounds, let me tell you. It was made by an engineer. You can tell that because it's got all these tables and you've got to do mathematical calculations (laughs) and it is awful. And um, my uh, one of my colleagues' jokes is that he said that uh, the best contraceptive about the rhythm meter is that by the time you've figured out what your chances, what your risks are, you've given up on the thought of having sex anyway, so you don't even bother. <laughs> it's the only contraception that has been rubber stamped by the Catholic Church because you could use it equally to predict when is best to have sex as opposed to when is best not to have sex. And when you can guarantee that you're going to get so bored that you lose complete interest. That's in right. Hallelujah, as, the, <laughs> as someone else would say. Catholics, I don't know. Oh, fantastic. So, <laughs> so um, where to for here, for, like from, for the Powerhouse Museum collection? Well, I'm going to go to some universities uh, in Sydney and try and pitch to their uh, a couple of departments about whether they have a PhD student who'd maybe want to really interrogate and dig into the collection, uh, much like with the inspiration from the Gorilla Girls and from the Countess, and of course their assistants as well, in terms of really thinking it through and trying to find a way where we can benchmark where we are now so that we can look to how we can improve in the future. Fantastic. Um, well, if there's anyone out there who is interested in hearing more about this, um, can they get in touch with you somehow, Tilly? Absolutely. You can contact us on the Powerhouse Museum's website. Um, we're under the blanket organisation of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney. Thanks so much for joining us, Tilly. Thank you.
All right, yes. So my name is Chris. You are listening to Lost in Science. Now, I went to a party on the weekend. It does happen. Um, but the, the topic came up about this genetic testing to find out about your family tree. Right, and this has it, been a hot topic of conversation in my house as well recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was certainly a hot topic the other night, and I, but me, I was on the skeptic side. I expressed skepticism about the <laughs> what, accuracy. What you, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, say, so, yeah. I was saying, you know, I'm not sure it's so accurate, and that led someone to ask me whether I had doubts about the accuracy of science in general. Well, yes, Do you obviously. Think- <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I, that was my reaction, and I, I, I've got to admit, um, that was from you know, my sort of what little I know of DNA and, and tests and those kind of things. Um, but I decided that I should um, hashtag fact check my gut reaction there. Well, the short answer is that I was right. Um, and for hang a lot on, of, hang on. You were right to be sceptical? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because uh, a lot of what the testing promises to tell you is not entirely accurate, to put it a short way. But, um, what but putting do they on promise? A, well, they, they promise to tell you essentially your family tree, effectively. Like you are uh, sometimes you're trying to indicate, you know, uh, where your ancestors were from when they migrated and this kind of stuff. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, but in terms of the actually how much it's accurate, um, what I've really struggled to find out is anyone who could put an actual number on what the accuracy is. Uh, and really it depends on the questions that you're asking because there are a number of different kind of questions you can ask with this process. So, look, one of the inspirations, one of the reasons we were talking about this was there was, um, I don't know whether you might have seen it, there was an article in the Washington Post recently that was uh, shared around a bit on the, um, on the internet. Um, and it was about a family who did this genetic testing only to find out that uh, they did not have the Irish heritage they thought they had, despite their father being a proud Irishman. He was very proud of his Irish identity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that was the story was them, them sort of trying that to find out what That throws into doubt their happened. identity. Yeah. So look, I won't entirely spoil what happened. I'll give you a bit of the details later on. But um, yeah, so they went into this path. Now, I should say there are a couple, number of different companies that offer this sort of testing. Um, one of them is, you may have heard of, is 23andMe, which uh, also, uh, we've talked about it before, I think, on the show a couple of years ago. They uh, kind of went beyond what science can promise in terms of predicting your health prospects you know your likelihood of various 23 being the number of chromosomes yeah, that you yeah. get from your mother and the number you get from your father that's right and yeah like the science of being able to predict your health from your genes is still in its early stages and so they're kind of over promising a lot of that stuff um but one of the one of the big uh, sort of kind of family tree testing ones now is run by the website ancestry.com and they're becoming quite well-known in this field. Um, and what they do, they essentially keep a database of people who've been tested so that, in principle, you can find your genetic relatives as allowing for kind of people's privacy settings and this kind of stuff. Um, so it usually involves, the process usually involves swabbing your cheek and sending it off to be tested. Now, there are a few different kind of tests that they can do. Um, probably the most accurate ones or the ones that have been used in legitimate science are Y-chromosome testing, which is good for tracing the patrilineal line, you know, the, the father line. Yeah. And then there is mitochondrial DNA for tracing the matrilineal line. Of course, because you get your mitochondrial DNA only yeah. from your mother. Yeah, because mitochondria are the little organelles within the cell that produce the energy. They have their own DNA. Um, that cell matter is only inherited in the, in the egg. Um, the sperm doesn't carry any of that, so you only get that from your mother. Yeah. Um, they can also do autosomal DNA, which essentially seems to be like the whole the whole lot. You just look at the whole genome. The, yeah, the whole genome contained yeah. within the yeah. nucleus. And there's with that, you know, it's a lot more mixing up of those ones. So that kind of give you your level of accuracy is, is quite reduced with that kind of thing. 
but yeah, so this this sort of stuff can be useful if it's backed up by other other data. So say for instance you have two men who have the same surname and they believe that they share a common male ancestor back a few hundred years ago. In theory, you'd expect them to have the same Y chromosome allowing for various mutations and things. So, you know, you can do that kind of checking, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, anything beyond that, this is where the term genetic astrology has been used by scientists, you know, what they're talking about, because there's a lot of promising to tell you about yourself and what kind of person you are, or who you might have been related to in the past, which is just kind of... Yeah, going a bit beyond what the science can say. Looking at that Washington Post example of the family who thought their father was Irish, there is no gene for being Irish. So you can't actually say this is the Irish gene. But best you can do is say that there are combinations that are more common in people from Ireland, and this can give you a clue as to what might have gone on or where to look. Um, and in fact, like with this one, because say this was an article in a major newspaper, of course they're going to come to a nice, neat conclusion at the end. So there had to be some sort of certainty within this particular story. So I wasn't at all surprised to find that the um, the heritage they did have was from um, uh, the true genetic heritage was Ashkenazi Jew. So it was a community that is kind of. Uh, fairly close and protective of its identity. So you're going to be a lot more certain about the genetics in that background than you would in kind of some of the broader populations. Right. So, you know, it wasn't quite a surprise that it was one of those kind of communities that could get a definite answer out of. Um, and so that made their conclusions much more confident and eventually led to the people finding their relatives. Wow. But it does raise the question, I guess for me, it raises the question of how much this actually does matter to your identity. So, like, of course it makes you question things, but, you know, if their father lived as a proud Irishman, does it really make a difference if his genes said otherwise? And uh, does the family magically transform from Catholic to Jewish just because of their genetic background? You know, I don't think science can answer that question, but it's, that's the kind of thing about what you ask about what really matters in terms of where you fit into a family, I suppose. But also what's interesting to me is what this is about the difficulty of pinning down your ancestry, ancestry through your genes. So, like, um, people are messy, of course. They move around a lot. Uh, they sleep around a lot. All the genes tend to get a bit mixed up. So, um, if you look back far enough, we are all related. I'm trying to find out about this, what the most recent common ancestor is. Okay. And I found a reference to a paper that was published in Nature in 2004. Now, this didn't actually use genetics so much. It used mathematical modelling to try and figure out, you know, is it possible to have a most recent common ancestor and how long ago would that have been when you look at the mixing of different populations? And so they model all the connections and rates of migrations between people all over the world and they concluded that we probably all do share a common ancestor probably from around East Asia around 3,500 years ago. What? Yeah. That's, that's really not very recent. Long ago. That's not that long. And if you go back... I thought it was Eve out of Africa. Like, no, that's the, your mitochondrial Eve and yeah. Yeah, Y chromosome Adam are kind of... The absolute ones. But this is like when you're looking at things, think of your autosomal DNA, mm. that we all have DNA from someone who lived 3,500 years. We didn't get yeah. all our DNA from that person. Okay. You know, that we all share DNA with that person. Okay. And if you go wow. back too far beyond that, say about 4,000 years earlier than that, then essentially we've got the same ancestors, set of ancestors that have passed down the genetic code about 5,000 years ago. Yeah. So... Look, it is a really fascinating idea. So this hinges on the fact that there are no truly isolated communities in the world. Even remote islands do get the occasional visitor from time to time when you look on the long scale of thousands of yeah. years. Um, again, though, like I said, it's a mathematical model, but it is something to think about. So what I'm saying is genetics, it's not really a shortcut to finding out your family tree without having to do things like, you know, comb through the archives or talk to your relatives. You, know, you can't really <laughs> avoid that. 
but it does show that we are all related, which is, I think, something of a good thing. I was asked the other day if there was any elements that science is unaware of, which is an interesting question, but it's not really a question that has a satisfying answer. So the known elements are all listed in the periodic table, which is based on the work of Dmitry Mendeleev from back in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. But he laid out the known chemical elements in a table according to the chemical properties they possessed and the the periodic table shows a kind of repeating pattern depending on the theorized structure of the elements. Oh, it's a work it's a work of art. It's yeah, it's it's this amazing deductive kind of thing that he came up with that everyone else went, oh, "Of course." Yeah. Of course it works that way. Yeah. But the most amazing thing is it had all those gaps in it. Well, that that's the thing. At the time we put the table together, there were gaps in the in the periodic table. He actually figured out that oh, hang on, these these things are repeating. So he theorized or he proposed hypothetical chemicals that would fill those gaps, and then we later on discovered them and filled them in. So he, it was it was a predictive model of what was. Mm, that's, what that's incredible. Was, that that is the amazing yeah. part. But so all these all these elements are in the periodic table, and the smallest element we know is hydrogen, which has one proton and one electron orbiting the proton. I shouldn't really say orbiting because it's not really how it works. That's fine. But it's a good enough model. Okay, so hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It's just pretty much, you know, if if you look at it statistically, the universe is hydrogen and there's a little bit of other stuff around. Um, But so each element that follows hydrogen in the periodic table has one more proton and one more electron. So helium has two of each and lithium has three of each and so on, and it just builds up and builds up uh, onto the heaviest elements. So the lower limit for what we would call an element is a single proton and a single electron. Um, And we might just think, well, surely you can just keep adding protons and adding electrons and get bigger and bigger atoms. Sure, why not? Sounds good. But obviously it doesn't work that way because we, there is a limit on on what we've found uh, in the elements. So the, uh, the heaviest uh, naturally occurring element on Earth is uranium, which has an atomic number of only 91. So 91 is kind of the, the, uh, the natural limit of, of elements on Earth. But um, above that level, atoms tend to get very unstable. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that they don't exist for very long before they break down into something else. Mm-hmm. Mm. So uh, uranium has a half-life of about 4.5 billion years, which coincidentally is uh, about the age of the Earth. Um, and what a half-life is, it means half of the uranium atoms created will decay in that 4.5 billion years. And when you say decay? They turn into something else. Yep. Um, so there's a little, there's about half of the uranium that was on Earth when it formed that's still around. Um, so heavier elements have even shorter half-lives, and so those heavier ones, there's none left on Earth. If they were here, they're long gone. So they would have already broken down into lighter elements. Mm. So all atoms heavier than lithium have been created by nuclear fusion in stars, and then they get distributed uh as the stars explode in supernovae or they just sort of fizzle out. And so those elements drift off and turn into new stars and planets and all those other things that are around. And basically uh, anything that's lighter than lead is pretty stable. It sticks around for 
billions and billions of years. So the only way to look for atoms heavier than those that naturally occur is to make them artificially by squishing together smaller atoms. And they do actually do this. They basically bombard protons onto heavy atoms and make heavier atoms. But they're not very stable, so they really don't last for a very long amount of time. So recognising this, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry uh, decided that they would define an element as one that exists for 10 to the minus 14 seconds, which is a really, really short amount of time. But if it has existed, they measured that it existed, well, that's good enough for the, uh, for the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. They go, yep, it existed. We, we can write that in our, in our ledger and put it into the, put it into the periodic, periodic table. table. That, is, that is less than like a single like, wavelength of light. Kind of yeah, but yeah. well, what they're saying is that the, the proton core, the nucleus of the atom... Yeah. Um, is stable enough to actually have electrons begin to orbit around it. So a field of electrons forms around the, the nucleus, and then if it falls apart after that, they, they just go, well, it did exist, and now it's not. So it's like when you're doing Jenga, and you put the bit on top, and like it wavels a bit, and then falls over. You say, no, it was there. It was yeah. working. You, you did yeah. win at that yeah. point, yeah. and then a gust of wind came, and yeah, yeah basically. Basically, they're just saying, well, we measured that it existed, and it doesn't matter. You know, in, in human scale of time, that's, mm. you know, it's irrelevant. But uh, obviously, in physics, that's a really long time, potentially. So basically, the instability of elements as they get bigger means that under the conditions we're used to, as in the conditions in which humans can live, there is a theoretical upper limit to their size. They just, they just won't stay in existence for very long because the forces that hold the protons together in the nucleus of the atoms break down at these conditions that we experience. But it's not just that, is there? Because my understanding is when you've got these theoretical elements... Um, you know, and they, they have been creating these and they have, you, by doing this, they have filled out all the gaps in the periodic table. So it's not just, you know, that definition of what we think, you know, the time element should last, but there are theoretically this many elements because there's many boxes on the periodic table. And now we have found all those, we've filled those boxes. Yeah. Well, they actually, they've theorized that there's more boxes. Well, where are those boxes in? They, 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 they think there'll be an eighth row on the bottom of the periodic table which could have a whole new range of elements but what they talk about when we get to this point is they theorize that there are islands of stability where super heavy elements could be stable um, based on what have been called and i really wish they hadn't called them this magic numbers of protons uh, (laughs) which which when there's a certain number of protons they magically stick together. And the, the reason they're saying it's magic is because they don't really understand why, why they would do that. But, like, <laughs> nuclear physics is incredibly complicated. Yeah. Um, and so actually predicting these things for certain is kind of beyond our current computational ability. So, you know, it's, it's basically we've got to do the experiments and try and find out. That's right. Yeah. It's absolutely... We, we, don't, we don't have any way of, of making this happen at the moment. We can't actually experimentally test these hypotheses at this point in time so the answer to the question of there being elements we don't know about is there probably are and we have no way of finding out if they exist or not
That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for staying with us. Lost in Science is recorded in 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find us on Gmail. Send us an email at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook at Lost in Sci on 3CR. Or maybe just tune in next week when we get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.